I pray that everyone in this room here today would be, would be transformed by that single truth. God loves you. So we stand on that promise today. We worship you with all of our hearts. In the name of Jesus, amen. Just a quick note. I, <clears throat> I hope you'll all stay for, for dinner today. We've got a great meal planned. And um, before we get to the meal, we have four baptisms this morning. And we're going to do it indoors. I don't think we've ever done that here at Valley before. So we'll try that out. But I, I hope you'll stay. And if you're visiting today, we're glad you're here. And I can think of no better way to get to know the church family here and, and, to, and to settle in here than to, to come to the lunch and enjoy the fellowship today. I don't, I don't think you'll regret staying after. So I hope you'll consider staying and joining us for, for a meal today. We never, ever get tired of the message that God loves us. It's the most important message that any of us can ever hear. When we consider our favorite Bible verses, the most significant Bible verses to us, we can't help but think of John 3.16, for, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 16.27 says, for the Father himself loves you. And I love that verse. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. The thought that God loves you transformed your life when you first hear it and when you respond by faith to it. And even if we've been Christians for a long time, the truth that God loves us, that God loves me, is essential to remind ourselves when life gets crazy, when circumstances consume us. My identity my, as, as his child, my identity as his beloved, is the absolute bedrock of our identity, of our role, and of our significance. God loves you. I want you to hear that today. There's lots of messages swirling around here, lots of announcements and lots of things for you to be involved with and things like that. Lots of messages today. We're packing a lot of things into a small space. But there's one message I want you to make sure you take home today, and that is that God loves you. But what if, what if that was the end of the discussion? What if the truth was the extent of God's, what if that truth was the extent of God's plan and his design for us? What if, what if that was it? And I think about that, I think if, if, if my whole life, if my whole being, if my, all of my faith is centered on the fact that God loves me, then the world gets pretty self-centered. There are many truths that come with God's word and God's design. That he loves us is, is the beginning, it's the fountainhead, it's the foundation for all that he has for us by faith, but it's not the only truth. For example, one, one, one truth that we often speak of here at Valley Free is that that is found in Genesis chapter 12, when God spoke to Abram, God told Abram that he would be a blessing to others. God said, I will bless you that you might be a blessing to others. God's love, God's blessing is never, ever, ever intended to stop with us. I always say it's supposed to be a flow-through blessing. His love is to be shared, it's to be given away so that others might know. His love transforms my life, but it's always meant, always meant to flow through to other people. 
to flow through into the lives of others around me, the, my friends, my family, my neighbor, everybody, everyone I come in contact with. The, his love for me is always designed to flow through and impact others. So let's build this out some more. Jesus said that he came not only to give his life, to pour out his love for us, but that he would also establish his church. In Matthew 16, 18, we know with a familiar verse, Jesus told Peter that he would establish his church on the testimony of the disciples. In other words, as the disciples would proclaim the message of Jesus, as they would proclaim their testimonies of God's love through faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus would then in turn call others together to come together as his people. You see, that's the church. Jesus never intended this faith, this love of God to be lived out individually, but in the context of community. Most of the New Testament is written to churches. It's written to gatherings of believers so that they could work out the gospel together in community. In the same way, the Apostle Paul gives instructions on marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. He tells, tells of love and respect, and he tells what, what the role of the husband is, the role, the role of the wife is in a marriage union. The, a marriage that God designed, that has God's, it's God's purpose. But as you know, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul actually, after he describes marriage and what it means to love and respect one another, he says, but you know what? This, this, this marriage idea, it's God's idea, it's God's design, it's his, it's his form of blessing for you as a couple but it's actually a picture of what? It's actually a picture of Jesus Christ as the bridegroom and his church as the bride. You see, our marriages are a reflection of what God has for his church, that relationship, that intimacy. My own life bears testimony to the power of the church to present Christ to the world around him. I grew up in a church that was strong in fellowship. I remember lots of potlucks in the basement. I remember knowing lots of people in the church, and, and we were just surrounded by great people. A great sense of community in the church that I grew up in. The pastors and the leaders unashamedly taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. They taught the word of God as what it is, the word of God. And they, and they passed it on to me, people as a teenager, people invested in my life in that church. When I left home for college and tried to prove that I didn't need God, it was the community of believers that the early days of this church that loved on me and wooed me back to Jesus. It was the power of community filled with the unconditional love that compelled me to re-examine my life and my future. It was then through the power of testimony, the power of community, that I realized I needed to rededicate my life to Christ. Yes, I'm a churchman. Someone, someone once accused me of being a churchman. And if that's the accusation, then I stand convicted. I stand proudly convicted. Not only do I see the centrality of the fellowship of believers in Scripture, but I believe that establishing a church, a Holy Spirit-filled community of believers in an area, in a community, is the best way to bring the gospel to the world. 
proclaiming God's word, combining with, combined with letting people see the gospel worked out among us in our relationship is the most powerful testimony that there is. Yes, I'm a churchman. One of the greatest joys for me is to see others live out their faith in the context of spirit-filled community, a church. That's why it's such a blessing for me to stand here and look out over the church and all of the stories represented in this room. Just this week, I've seen people giving themselves to acts of service. Somebody, I don't know if you've noticed, but somebody has shampooed most of the carpets in the building. People were busy setting up tables yesterday for the, for the event today. People yesterday were building bunk beds for families in our communities as part of our church ministry. I've seen people praying with others. I've seen people preparing meals for others. I've seen yesterday somebody hung a new video projector up here. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but somebody spent time doing that yesterday. Somebody was fixing locks on doors yesterday, mowing the lawn, all because they love Jesus and they love his church. In a little while, we're going to see four young people give their testimony of Jesus and salvation in their life, and they're, gonna, they're going to do it through baptism in just a few minutes. But they'll do it in the context of community, and we will all rejoice because we've invested in their lives so that they could know Jesus. Next week, a small army of Sunday school teachers will take their posts. Youth team, youth leaders will take their posts. Nursery staff will take their posts in the church so that kids can grow up in Jesus Christ. Bible studies will begin. Adult Sunday school classes will start again. Board meetings will convene, all because we love Jesus and we love his church. Yes, we can make a, a case for the centrality of, God's, of the church in God's word. Ecclesiology is an important aspect of theology. But we can also look around us and testify that God is showing his love. God is showing his power. God is showing his grace through his gathered people, the church. Yes, God loves you. And he works out that love in the fellowship of believers. So let's take a few minutes this morning. I'm going to talk really fast. And let's, let's, let's look at this idea of church. Look in the scripture and see what it means for us today. First of all, we need to define what the church is. The, the simple definition of the church is, is, is the gathering of people. It's the gathering of people who gather together for a specific purpose or occasion. In the original language of the New Testament, it could have meant a gathering for just about any purpose. It just, it just meant calling out people. A group of people that's called out to meet together for an occasion. When Peter described what God, what God was doing uh, in the church, in his people, he, he described it in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's, he described it as being a holy nation, a people for God's own purposes, a royal priesthood. The collection of believers was seen as a holy nation of God's called out people. And it was all for the purpose and the glory of God. That's how Peter described the church. Going further with the definition of church, we see, we see the word church used in two different ways for Christians. First of all, in Scripture, we see the word church used in the sense of, of universal church. This refers to the church through the ages. It refers to the time of Christ to, the, to present day, all through history. 
It refers to believers all throughout history as well as the church across the globe and across cultures today. So it's, it's down the annals of history and it's across the cultures today. That's why we can walk into our sister church in Pitesh, Romania and feel like we're at home because that's the church of Jesus Christ as much as this is the church of Jesus Christ. We can walk into churches any place on the globe, churches that will proclaim Jesus Christ and preach his word. We can walk in and feel like we are brothers and sisters because we are. That's the universal church. When we cite the Apostles' Creed, it says that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. It's not referring to the Pope and the Catholic Church religion, but to the universal church. Catholic is another way to describe the universal church. When the word is used in the New Testament, it refers to the universal church about 25% of the time, which brings me to the next definition of church, and that is the church, listen to this, the church particular, the local church, the church particular. Most of the references in the, uh, to church in the New Testament refer to the local church. Much of the, the New Testament consists of letters written to churches. That's why, that's why the names of the books of the Bible in the New Testament sound so weird to us. If you've ever had the privilege, privilege and the pleasure of watching someone who's never cracked open a Bible, and you say, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, it's quite an adventure for somebody. Ephesians, nobody knows how to say it. But it's actually the name of a town. It's actually the name of a city in Turkey today, modern-day Turkey, Ephesus. So Paul wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus, and it's called the Ephesians. Much, many of the letters are written that way. The, the letters are written to churches so that they can work out the gospel, and there's a lot of particular circumstances because they're not always getting it right either. And so the Apostle Paul and the others wrote letters to the churches so that they could understand the gospel and how to apply it in their lives. That's what we do in the church. The church of the day didn't have big buildings. They probably met in homes. There's evidence, there's archaeological evidence that some of the homes were gutted out on the inside so that they could have large gatherings in large homes. But the church is not a building. It's a gathered group of believers with Christ as their Lord. The church is not a set of rituals or liturgy, although that's important. It's a group of believers who are gathered together to worship the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The, the church isn't a place where others are expected to come to. It's a group of people gathered for the purpose of going out into the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. That's called the church militant. Scripture uses several metaphors for us to understand the beauty and the calling of the church. It's pictured as the bride of Jesus Christ. It's, it's pictured as the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12. A, a body of Christ with a broad diversity, but yet with a unity found in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. It's called the household of faith. It's called a spiritual house. It's called the temple of the living God. With each believer being a living stone in that building. It's a beautiful picture. In each picture, the listen to this, the individual believer is precious to God. God loves you. There is a, there's an individual component to our faith. God loves you. God died on the cross for you. In each of the pictures, the metaphors for the church, there's an individual component in there. You are special. You are God's chosen. Peter says that we are living stones built into the, a, a building, a household of God, a temple of God. We are living stones 
built into the wall. I try to imagine living stones in a, a brick face with all of our faces planted on them. But that's what it is. God loves you. But God loves you, plural. He loves his church. He loves his people gathered. He loves all of his people like a groom loves his bride. The biblical view of the church is not understood by the world or the culture around us. We hear lots of different ideas of what the church is and what the world expects the church to be. Most of them, if not all of them, are misconceptions. Some think it's a political entity. Some focus on social justice, such as feeding the poor, housing, housing issues, or injustice of any kind. For some, it's simply a social club, not much different than belonging to the golf club. Some, it's someplace to be seen. Some, some see it as a once-a-week stop-off to ensure their good standing with God. Some see it as simply a ritualistic exercise with, with no impact on Monday morning. Increasingly, the church is seen as a haven for radical ideas that are dangerous for a progressive society. The idea of the church as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, where people set apart for God's glory is a beautiful picture and a beautiful reality for us. But for the culture around us, it's a foreign concept. Now let's look at Ephesians. Acts chapter 2. Let's look at the church realized, the church in action, the church conceived, the church born, and the church worked out. The book of Acts follows all the Gospels, the story of the, the narrative of, of the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus while he was on the earth and documents his resurrection. The book of Acts is a, is a, is a documentation, it's a narrative of how the, how the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is worked out in the church and out into the world. That's what the book of Acts is. So the book of Acts is, more, is oftentimes called the Acts of the Apostles, but actually it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It tells the work of the Spirit in the lives of the believers, the disciples, and then as it is worked out into the world. The book starts out in chapter 1 with the disciples gathered in the upper room. And, and Jesus had told them, go and wait for the gift that's coming, for the Holy Spirit that's coming. Go and wait. So they went and they prayed. And we know the story in Acts chapter 2, verses 1, and, 1 through 4. This is what happened after they prayed. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. People, this is the birth of the church. You're standing, you're standing in the maternity ward. You're standing in the delivery room. This is the birth of the church right here. Jesus said, go and wait, go and pray, wait for the Holy Spirit to be given to you. And on that day, the morning of the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended on the church and you see what happened. They began to preach. They began to proclaim their testimonies. And the people around them heard them in all their languages. And the city of Jerusalem was filled with people from all over the world for the festival of the Pentecost. And they were amazed and to the point that they thought they were drunk. What is this? They're speaking in a tongue, and I can understand it in my language. What is this? It's the Holy Spirit proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through the testimonies of those who were gathered together. <coughs> 
Verse 14, Peter stood up. I, 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 wish, I, I wish I could be there. I wish, maybe when we get to heaven, Peter will imitate this or reenact this for us. But Peter, somehow in, in the temple courts, he stood up. And I think about pulling up a, a, a box or standing up on a bench or standing up on a table. Peter began to preach the word of God. It was the first sermon of the first church. And God moved in power as the story of Jesus was unfolded to the crowd. Their testimonies were shown. Their, the word of God was shown. Jesus was shown for who he was. The word of God was preached. And the, word of, the response to the word of God was powerful, and it was instantaneous. Look at verse 37. Verse 37. I love this. Now, when they heard this, when they heard about Jesus and Peter told them all that, told them what they had done by crucifying Jesus and, and that he indeed is Lord. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises is Promises for you, for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And the church was born that day. 3,000 people, at least 3,000 people came to know Christ that day. They gave their lives to Jesus Christ. They made that decision. It, says, it goes on to say that they baptized 3,000 people that day. I believe the number is actually larger than that. They bapt Can you imagine going to a baptism service where there's 3,000 people baptized? That's amazing. That's another story, how that was done, but that's amazing. This was the birth of the church. You see, when the gospel is preached, God's people are gathered. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, starts in verse 20, 42, and he gives a description of the church. Listen to this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I don't think I read that with enough passion. I wonder when Luke sat down to write that out and, and, the, and the memories of that day flooded past him. I wonder if the, the church gathered together and all the, all the marks of the church, they were devoted to the teaching, to the fellowship, the meals in common. They had everything in common, practicing generosity. Great awe and wonder was there in their midst. I wonder if Luke just couldn't hardly contain himself to write it out. That's the birth of the church. That's the living church. The first church must have been an amazing sight, an amazing experience. People hungered to know more of the gospel. The worship must have been passionate, joyful, and loud. Prayers must have been passionate, must have been pleading, must have been full of repentance and full of worship. The joy and the enthusiasm must have been extremely contagious. They turned the city upside down. And I imagine that there was no home in, in all of Jerusalem that was, that was not impacted by what was happening in that first church. From this beginning, the church moved out into the world. The book of the Acts contains the record of, I say, the, the gospel hopping over the fence and it moved out from Jerusalem into the farthest parts of the world. 
And it's an exciting story to read in the book of Acts. And we get to go to Greece and experience a lot of those locations. It'll be amazing. Wherever the gospel and the believers went, churches were established. I want to, I want to draw your attention to two things. We could go through that list of characteristics uh, and go through each one of those. And what, are the, what, are, what are the marks of a healthy church? We could go through each one of those things, but I want to draw your attention to two things to this morning. First, I want you to see that the church is established by Jesus and is empowered by his spirit. We are nothing but a gathered group of people, complete strangers who don't know each other unless the Holy Spirit is here moving among us. This is a Holy Spirit-filled community. He is, our, he, is our, he is our power. He is the one who brings us together. He is our unity. Jesus is the head of the church. It's his body, and he's, he is the head of the church. Second, and I want you to catch this, the primary focus of the church, and lots of people have lots of ideas for what the church needs to be, but the primary focus of the church needs to be preaching the word of God and calling people to Jesus. I don't have time to go into it now. There's notes. There's, there are notes in your sermon notes there. The book of Acts is sometimes divided into six different books. At the end of each book is a summary statement. And I listed those verses off so you could see the summary statements. And I'm encouraging you to go through and read those six passages and ask yourselves, what's the mark of a healthy church? And I think one of the things you'll find when you do that is that the word of the Lord abounded. The word of the Lord prevailed mightily. The word of the Lord was preached. The testimony of Jesus was, was preached and proclaimed. As you go through all six of those verses and they summarize what, what the movement of the Holy Spirit is, you will often find it's the word of God that is the focus. There are lots of good things that we need to do. There's lots of things that God calls us to do. Feeding the poor, uh, housing the poor, doing all kinds of, you just fill in the blank. God calls us in a lot of different directions. But the first thing God calls the church to be about is establishing people in the gospel of Jesus. That's why we do what we do. In fact, the church, when it, when it is being the church, changes culture. The church, the church impacts lives. The church fights against human trafficking. The, the, the church fights against slavery. The church establishes orphanages. We do a lot of great things in the name of the Lord, and he calls us to do those things. But the first thing we do and everything that we do is to be surrounded by proclaiming Jesus Christ. It's all for the gospel. It's all, that so, all those, so people can know Jesus. So what does that mean for us today? When I look at our congregation today, I see the church. I see a group of people who are seeking after Jesus. Maybe for the first time, maybe for a lifetime, God's people gathered to seek the Lord together. Loving one another, serving one another, a passion for the world to know Jesus, a commitment to see family strengthened in the faith, walking together in Jesus, living life on life. That's what I see when I look out at the church of Jesus Christ gathered at the corner of 41 and Angler. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know that you are a beautiful picture. Our emphasis as a church family is to proclaim Jesus and to grow in his word. We are unashamedly, we unashamedly open the Bible for instruction, for wisdom, for guidance, and for encouragement in Jesus. 
whether it's preaching on Sunday, whether it's corporate worship times like we've enjoyed this morning, whether it's a Sunday school class for any age, whether it's youth ministry or children's church, our goal is to, is to call attention to Jesus Christ and his word. And for your part, we encourage you to join us. Would you come and worship with us? Would you join a life group or a small group study and learn with us? <clears throat> Would you live with us life on life, sharing faith together, living life together? Jump in to serve wherever you desire. Exercise your faith with us. We believe that you are a gift to the church. As a spirit-filled community, our desire is to walk together, to grow in faith together, to experience all that Jesus has for us. We are here for you for that purpose. We welcome you to the church of God, the bride of Jesus Christ and the household of faith. I'll close with this, and then we have a video, and the, and the worship team is going to lead us out. <clears throat> Ephesians 3, verse 10 says this about the church of Jesus Christ. That, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You see, you think you're just coming to church on Sunday. What we don't know is that in the spiritual realm, all of heaven is watching us worship. And when we disperse today, and we go back to our homes, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, into our school classrooms, wherever we go on Monday morning, the church dispersed. All of heaven is watching and waiting to see what God will do. You ever think of yourselves as living in a, a department store display window? Your life and our lives together are being watched by all those in heaven in eternity, and they're anxiously waiting to see how the good, gracious purposes of God are worked out. God is glorified when his church gathers together. And I think it's a beautiful picture. We want to reflect his glory. We want together to display the wisdom of God.